Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Let's start with the first one. A spouse wrote, I'm having a very hard time believing that my sex addict husband could love me and do these things. Can you tell me your view on this? So first of all, every spouse I've ever worked with says, I don't understand how you could love me and do this. Or if you loved me, you wouldn't do this. And what's very hard for me to get across to spouses of sex addicts is that Spouses of wives and husbands of alcoholics have been saying this forever. If you love me, you wouldn't drink. Translate that. If the person knew how to stop drinking, they would. If the drinking wasn't filling a purpose that they were filling somewhere else, they would stop. So I think what, what spouses, and I completely understand this after 25 years of this work, trust me, I've written books for you spouses, you know that. But in part, the deal is, is that we are troubled. We are troubled people. And if I came home and I said, I had diabetes and I, you know, I'm going to be struggling this rest of my life, you wouldn't say, well, do you love me? If I said I had an alcohol and drug problem and I was really struggling, I need to get help, you probably wouldn't say, do you love me? And yet, and even if I had a gambling problem, like a behavior problem or an eating disorder, you wouldn't ask that question. I don't know what you might say, but you wouldn't say, you don't care about me. It's only in this area of the addictions where someone who's a spouse says, if you cared about me, you wouldn't do this. And that from the spouse's perspective, it makes perfect sense because how could you do this if you love me? How could you do this if you cared about me? But that's not where it's coming from. So actually, uh, let me give a quick story um, from my marriage. So um, uh, about, so I've been married for or with my husband for 21 years. And in the first five or six years, I absolutely lost my mind because he would do things like leave a trail of clothing behind him or like taking them off, leaving them on the floor, or he would uh, make dish- make food and leave the kitchen a mess. Or, And I, you know, I started saying things like, if you cared about me and you understand what was important to me, because I grew up in a very dirty house, my parents didn't do so well on cleaning. It's very important for me, the house to be clean and neat. And so husband, when you do this, it leaves me feeling like you don't care about me because you won't do these simple things that are very important to me. And I went through that for a couple of years. It almost got to the point where I wasn't necessarily sure I was going to stay in the relationship because I was tired of coming home and seeing these things the way they were. And then we took him to a therapy psychiatry and realized that he had ADD. He has profound attention deficit. No matter what my husband did, he was not going to remember to clean up the kitchen after making dinner because he'd make dinner and then he'd think about the computer. And before you know it, he'd be in the other room on the computer because that's how people with ADD are. They're very impulsive. So for years, I thought, oh, my God, if you love me, you wouldn't treat our home and me like this. Now I realize no matter what I did, you weren't going to be able to treat our home the way I want you to because you can't track. You don't follow. You don't remember. And then I started reading books about how to live with someone with ADD. And I learned how to negotiate it and work it out so that I didn't take it personally. And uh, he was able to begin to, on medication therapy, follow through on things that were important to me. So being cheated on, being betrayed is a much deeper level of hurt and if you love me you wouldn't do this then things around the house but i now understand 
what's going on, which is if they could do it, they would. If they, most of the po- folks I work with would never lie to a coworker necessarily. They would never defraud a contract. They don't particularly cheat on other situations. But when it comes to this stuff, um, we don't keep our word. We lie. We manipulate and all that stuff. It doesn't mean we don't love you. It does mean we're deeply troubled. You know, and that is just the truth. We held and kept our troubledness from you for a very long time. It, we knew what was going on. You didn't. Um, so we can absolutely love you and we can absolutely love our families and not treat them well and do a really bad job of that because we are troubled. That's part of what treatment's about and all the work that we do is to try to bring people back to a sense of balance and understanding what the priority is in life and it's not going having sex with other people. So anyway, that I thought that was helpful. That's my best um, answer to that question. Tammy would say, just move on. So I'm gonna move on. Hi, Dr. Rob. In your experience when you do, oh, sorry, in your experience, when do you find the betrayed spouse's ambivalence begin to dissipate? I am seven months out from disclosure and find, even though I am seeing my, my essay, sex addict husband, doing the work and showing up as much as he can for me, I'm still very wary about our relationship. And I just think, well, of course you are. Um, it's very early in the process. I, I don't know. I'd be curious who's asking this question, whether this is any kind of pressure you're getting from your addict husband, or it's just a feeling that you have about, you know, when am I going to start to trust again? Uh, I don't think that you can make yourself trust somebody. And I don't think you can m- invite someone in when you don't feel safe. I think it comes over time. And it comes in little dribs and drabs. Oh, this person's acting differently. Oh, they're letting me in on this. Oh, they're coming home and sharing. And they're going to meetings. They're in therapy. We get little hints that things are going better. And every little hint makes us a little more trusting if we are looking to be more trusting. So forgiveness can take a very long time. I'm going to actually teach a course in forgiveness, I think, because it's interesting stuff. But what you're asking about is not forgiveness. It's simply when can I feel more safe, more comfortable? When can I lean into the love that I know I have rather than being in the middle? And I would say eight months to a year. I mean, I think you're heading in that direction. And the fact that you're asking this question tells me that. But on the other hand, I think you're way too early. If you read out of the doghouse, which is the book I wrote for, for addicts and people who cheat, you know, I tell them it's going to be a year. And so I think just your awareness, which is really cool that you may not be where you want to be, but you are seeing your spouse do the work tells me that you are headed that way, but you're expecting a little too much too soon, or your addict spouse is uh, looking for a little too much too soon. So um, I would say be be at peace. I would be wary too, as you should be. Um, Give it a couple of months. That's uh, my best recommendation. Um, Okay, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. Um, Someone said, hello, I can't answer that. Okay, someone said, I was referred to a CSAT, which is a therapist who's a specialist in sex addiction through seeking integrity, which means they called Tammy and she gave them a recommendation. I spoke to that therapist briefly and he set me up with appointments with someone working in his practice. This therapist is not a CSAT and is a female. Will this therapist be effective or how should I proceed? I did have two sessions with this therapist and I'm positive, but unsure. Okay. So a couple of things, I'm assuming that this is a partner and not an addict. And so uh, if you are a sex addict, I probably would not want to see someone who was not trained in this, even if they worked with someone that I respected, 
Um, everyone who comes to the staff with us gets the CSAT. Um, they learn, by the way, that means certified sex addiction therapist. It is just a whole different range of therapeutic work. Um, it's a whole different stance that the therapist has to ha have. We're looking at the long view of certain things and the short view of others. So those of us who treat sex addicts and love addicts and people with intimacy disorders and porn addicts, we really need very specialized training. And that's not something I can pass on to someone, even if they're trained in the addictions. You have to be able to talk sex and betrayal. And most therapists don't have that language. Um, if you're a betrayed partner, and you are working within the practice of a CSAT, and let's say you're seeing a female therapist on staff, I think that's fine. Uh, you like them because what partners need is completely different than what addicts need. If you read Prodependence, you will understand that, you know, um, what addicts need is structure, containment, confrontation, um, hope, organization, um, accountability, um, but spouses aren't trying to recover from a behavior that you've been doing forever and is just so automatic to you that you don't know how to stop. Um, spouses are simply recovering. Well, I don't mean to say it's simple, but spouses are recovering from loss, from grief, from your hopes and dreams being thrown on the rocks, from believing that this person had your back and they never did. I mean, that is what you are recovering from. So for spouses, if someone is supportive, if they're understanding, if they can make you feel comfortable that they understand what betrayal is. The job of the therapist of a spouse is really to support and hold on to and give hope and advice and direction and encourage self-care and all those kinds of things. If it were to come down to a disclosure or something more formal, I might want to make sure, okay, this person just wrote, you're the addict. So no, I would. <laughs> so I have a colleague who uh, kind of picked up uh, uh, some of the work that I used to do here in LA. And I think a lot of folks at that clinic see interns, um, which is frequently how it works. By the way, if you're a practice starting out, you become the, the, the professional, the licensed person. And then you start to hire people who are uh, less trained and you, they train under you and you make money that way. But under this kind of work, I would never ever personally refer to someone who didn't have the training. And I certainly wouldn't refer to someone who was, was not licensed. So it's nice to feel comfortable with a therapist. I'm, I think that's number one thing that's most important. But if they are not trained to treat sex addiction, I wouldn't see them. And if I were married to someone, I would imagine they would not feel particularly comfortable with my seeing someone who's not trained and is a female. Um, I have to tell you that, guys, it's the, the how do I say this? I can count on one hand in a thousand cases, maybe less, maybe three fingers, how many female therapists have actually been inappropriate with a client. Um, it's very, very atypical. Can they be clueless about the addiction? Sure. Can they be clueless about betrayal and recovery? Sure. But I don't think that the fears of many spouses that, oh my God, you're seeing a woman, that means you're going to get something going are really well-founded. But again, the more trained the professional, the better opportunity you're going to have to heal. And if I was referred to a CSAT and they said, oh, I'm really busy, but please see this intern or this therapist I'm working with, I would say, thank you, but I need to see another CSAT. Can you make a referral? Um, that's probably my, that is my best answer. Okay. Next question. I like this better when Tammy's here. It's not as much fun. Um, anyway, sorry. I was referred to a, oh, sorry, we got that one. Um, my sex addict husband has been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. Is this a common diagnosis with sex addicts? How will he handle therapy? Will the OCD be handled separately? 
Okay, so that's a lot of questions, but let me just briefly talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessive compulsive disorder is something that is miserable and makes people um, hate themselves and lose their lives because I have a client who has OCD and when he walks in the room, he starts counting the ceiling tiles and how many dots are on my tie. And he can only take a certain exit on the freeway because when he takes a different one, he feels like something bad might happen. happen and he can only step in the shower a certain way. Another, and, and then he has to wash his hands at least five times an hour. These are compulsions without pleasure. Compulsions without pleasure is OCD. Compulsions with pleasure are addictions. Things I do over and over again to reduce anxiety that are not fun, like washing my hands, are compulsions. Things like OCD, mental health issue. Things that I do over and over again that are pleasurable that I do to reduce anxiety are addictions, and they can be substances or behaviors. However, where the two cross will not be determined until this person is stable on medication. I have a client who has OCD right now, and I told him straight out, until you deal with OCD, you're not going to get better. You can see all the therapists in the world, you can do all the treatment in the world, but your brain is broken, and you are very compulsive, and it's hard enough for you to not jump over the cracks in the sidewalk, no less actually start to work on avoiding the situations that lead you to sexual acting out. So the first step with someone with OCD is get them to a psychiatrist, get them on the right medication. That can take a little while. Get them on the right dosage of medication. Medication is required here. You're not going to get better. It's very rare and unusual, in my opinion, for people to get to a quick resolution with OCD without meds. Once the, the, the OCD clears, which the medication will help provide, medication can do about 80% of the OCD recovery. The rest, um, they don't really need to focus as much on, they need to focus on their sexual recovery, their addiction healing. But without dealing with the OCD, um, I don't think the person can get well. So are they handled separately? Not really. I might, I would, I would pass off this client to a psychiatrist. I would explain what's going on with them and the OCD. I would expect they would examine the client, put them on medication, refer them back to me, tell me what's going on. So it isn't really separate, but in terms of doing treatment, obsession is obsession, compulsion is compulsion. Once I realize that the medication has allowed the person to have choice, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to do that. I can decide not to do that and follow through. Then I know the medication's working and it's time to really look at how they can heal from addiction. So I would say they're sequential, but I don't think different therapies are required, but medication certainly is. Okay. So I answered that one. <laughs> okay. Next question. How much input should my partner have on my circle plan? I'll tell, explain that in a second. If there's a disagreement, should I take a stand and completely own it or let her take control so it's at her comfort? This is a very good question because we're not talking about boundaries. We're not talking about communication. We're, what, a, what a circle plan is, is how we sex addicts define sobriety. So in AA, it's pretty simple. You don't drink and you don't use mood, mood altering substances. That's very clear. With gambling disorder, it's very clear. Uh, I don't, secure, I don't uh, seek out unsecured debt. I don't go to casinos. I don't do fantasy football. I don't play the stock market. It's pretty clear what gambling is. Um, but when it comes to healthy sexuality or in another arena, healthy eating, 
for people who have disorders that are, you know, eating is part of life. Sexuality is a healthy part of life. We don't want to eliminate them like drugs and alcohol. We want to modulate them. We want to put them in a box that keeps us safe and the people we love safe. So all that is a precursor to what a circle plan is, which is a written and organized plan for sobriety that allows me to say, I haven't done these things. That means I'm sober. If I did do them, then I've had a slip and I need to go back and work on it. We have to define basically what is okay healthy sexual behavior for us and what is not okay, uh, unhealthy sexual behavior for us. Otherwise, we'd be walking around in the dark. Um, however, what goes in the circle plan in the very middle is the bottom line behaviors that if I do this, it's a slip. If I do this, I have crossed my boundary. I have broken my sobriety. And therefore, a couple of things. The things that are, and this is for everybody, the things that are defined as sobriety, that I can say I have a year, I have six months, just like anyone in any support group, that has to be sexual and it has to be behavior. So while my spouse, and I'll go back to that, while my spouse and I may be horrified at all the lying I do, and as much as my spouse would like to say, well, lying needs to be in your inner circle, it needs to be a sign of your sobriety because I don't wanna be lied to anymore. The answer is, you know, I may lie, I might, and I need to go back and clean it up. But that's not the same as having sex with a sex worker. <laughs> you know, that's not the same as compulsive masturbation to porn. So for us, for us addicts, we need to have a very clear behavior that is sexual in order to, to call that sobriety. And here's another example. I drove through the wrong part of town. Um, that's middle circle, that's warning sign. But then I called my sponsor and they said, come on over and have coffee and get out of that part of town. And I did. Well, I was there and I thought about doing something, but I did the right thing and drove off and got support instead. That's a win, right? So I wouldn't ask somebody to break their sobriety because they drove into a neighborhood, let's say, or because they said the wrong thing to someone. I would if they engaged in, in concrete sexual behavior that I could that I wouldn't want to see if I were walking by. So the bottom, of the bottom line is, of course, your spouse and all partners need to see what your sobriety is. Absolutely. And they absolutely get to weigh in on their feelings and thoughts about it. They also need to understand how the plan is built, which is not just sobriety, but it's also warning signs and also rewards of healthy living. And you know what the whole thing is all about. It's not just about sobriety. But the bottom line is that you have to decide what is right for you on your plan. You get to choose whether that will or won't meet what your partner wants. Um, that's up to you, your sponsor, your therapist. But in this sole case, it is not up to the spouse, nor does the spouse have a right to say, you do this and that sobriety. Um, you can say how you feel. You can say what you want. But this is where our boundary is. My recovery is mine. And that doesn't mean that I don't have to show it to you. I do. That doesn't mean I don't have to have a conversation with you. I do. That doesn't mean I get to ignore your feelings or your input. In fact, if you gave me input about my plan and I didn't feel comfortable with it, I would go to my sponsor. I'd go to my therapist. I would ask questions. I would love someone here to say, does this belong in a circle plan or not? But ultimately, it is me who has to decide whether it works for you or not, whether you stay in my life or not, whatever happens. Well, how do I define sobriety? And then to share that with you. Um, you may come up with some great thing that I never thought of, and I'll need to put that on my plan. But you may also come up with, you know, things that simply are not related in a direct way. And I have to say no. So that's my best answer for that.
Don't you all miss Tammy? It's so much more fun when there's two of us up here. Although I would not begrudge this uh, wonderful woman doing snow angels with her grandkids. I'm sure that's more fun than we are. Okay. Um, someone said something I don't really understand. Spouses and wives of alcoholic don't involve a different partner. Oh, I see. I understand that. So to the spouse who said this, this is related to the question earlier, which is how can they love me if they did this? What I'm saying to you is sex addiction is the same as alcoholism, is the same as gambling addiction. It's the same for us addicts. Yes, it's different for you. We are betraying you. We don't betray you with alcohol, one could say. We do betray you with porn and sex with other people. But for us, it's the same. Um, for us, it is an illness. It is something that is wrong with us. It's a brain disorder. It requires work. And in our minds, it doesn't matter whether we're betraying ourselves, a family member, we get a DUI, we have sex with other people. It's all the same to us, which is a way to escape my reality and have control over it. And most often something I don't want you to know about because you wouldn't like it. Um, I, and the whole point of that discussion was I understand that spouses feel like you couldn't love me if you're with someone else. How could this be caring about me? Look at how you treated me. That's all true. However, it's also true that addiction doesn't necessarily, addiction is an illness. And if I have an addiction, it's what I do out there that is problematic is not a reflection necessarily of any of my feelings about you. Does it affect you? Yes. Does it ruin us? Yes. Is it awful and uncaring? Yes. Is it about the, the idea that I don't love you? No. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't try to hide it. If I didn't love you, I'd just do what I wanted. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't try to make sure you never knew about it, to be honest with you. Um, I don't want to lose you. You're important to me. I don't want to get in trouble. And so I lie about it. To me, I actually consider that a sign of wanting to protect the relationship since I'm not able to stop that. Um, by the way, you spouses know that I get really real, right? I may not always say the things you might want, but I'm on your side and I'm with you. Okay. Okay, I am a betrayed partner with a question and an example about compartmentalization. My sex addict husband has been sober for 18 months and in recovery. Good news. So this is the question, the scenario. Back in his addiction, he made birthday videos for me and his affair partner. He thought of both of us at the same time. The affair partner and I each have birthdays in the same month. The video he made for me looked like more of an afterthought, short, simple, and like he hadn't done anything for this in the 30 years we've been together. The birthday video for the affair partner was a major production. He recorded it. He recorded himself in his hobbies. He ordered special props. Um, how is this compartmentalization when he's thinking about us both at the same time? Um, I can tell you that. So compartmentalization means that I can go over here and do this and not think about that. So even though on some way I know that cheating on you and, and giving you an STD and seeing sex workers is, is horrible for you, for me, for the relationship, I know that. I can break that off from my reality with you and go do it anyway. So it isn't compartmentalization that leads somebody to treat an affair partner differently than a partner. It's uh, more like being a jerk 
in my mind. But don't you understand that everyone who's having having an affair thinks it's golden and amazing and wonderful. They send jewelry to their affair partner and they take they take you to Olive Garden, right? Like that's how an affair is. You know, this person gets built up and they're special. And of course, they don't have to change diapers with you. They don't have to do laundry with you. They don't have to watch you age. So having an affair is much easier and more to have it be exciting and intense rather than a meaningful, committed, long-term relationship. But this is not compartmentalization. This is someone treating their affair partner better than their spouse. And you're right, you are an afterthought, but but don't you understand spouses? For us, when we're active in our addiction, you're always an afterthought. Everything and everyone is an afterthought, except our primary goal, which is getting laid or doing drugs or whatever it is we want to do, and everything else comes second. So the fact that he thought of you at all, I don't know what he was thinking, why he did it. Maybe it occurred to him, oh, if I did this over here, maybe that might be a nice thing to do over here. But you're not the one he's giving diamonds to. You're the one he's taking to Olive Garden. And so you're not going to get the special video while this person is in a compulsive, addictive, driven relationship with an affair partner. Um, you're not going to get the same vacations. You're not going to, you know, it goes like that. Um, end the affair. Stop the acting out. And then maybe you two could have a conversation about what you would like to have on holidays and birthdays and what you want to share together. Right now, if this is still going on, uh, he's clueless or she's clueless. Okay. I have to remind myself to breathe. We are 14 months post-discovery. So let me just say for everyone who doesn't understand that concept, discovery means that I am a spouse or a partner or a family member or someone else close to you. And I had no idea that you were acting out. None. I had no idea you were doing any of this sexual stuff outside of our relationship. And discovery is, I just found out about part of it or all of it. Um, it's not the same as disclosure, which is a formal therapeutic process. Discovery is, oh my God, I found this on the computer. It's literally discovery. So we are 14 months post-discovery us, and this is a married or a committed couple. My sex addict husband stopped acting out immediately and claims to have no cravings or euphoric recall. How common is this? He's in full retirement. First, in he's in treatment. First, inpatient, now weekly CSAC groups and three weekly SAA meetings. This is wildly frustrating because it was so easy to stop. Why didn't he? Okay, there are a lot. <laughs> there are a lot of questions in there. So let me let me give the best answers I can in order. This is my experience, 25 years of doing the work. Take what you like and leave the rest. I think it is absolutely impossible, not in any way possible, for someone who has been doing this kind of behavior for a long time to stop on a dime and never more have cravings or, or euphoric recall. I, I just think that's a lie. I think that we want you guys to believe that we, every guy I know says, oh, to his spouse, I never, the minute you found out, I never did it again and I'll never do it, never, never, never. That's just not reality. So first of all, that's a lie. And that is a lie intended to keep you quiet so that you won't constantly be suspicious or worrying. Um, what I worry about, what I wonder about is, have you been through disclosure? Have you met with a formal therapist and sat down and he had to read you and go through all of his behaviors that you didn't know about and all of that? Um, yes, it's wildly frustrating, I think, because you're being lied to. You know, someone doesn't do something for half your marriage and then turn around and say, oops, I don't feel like doing it anymore. And they're done. I will say this, that in a crisis, people can have their compulsive behaviors lifted for a period of time. So I came home one night and you were on the computer and you found out everything about my acting out and I, you had 
discovery. And then I realized, oh my God, look at what this is doing to you, my relationship, my family. And I am so freaked out as an addict that, that I'm going to lose whatever it is I'm going to lose, that I lose my desire to continue. That all of a sudden I don't feel like acting out. And I don't feel like that is true for many of us when we are in crisis. However, it's going to come back. And the work that needs to be done while I am in this honeymoon of in a crisis and don't feel like acting out, that is when the therapy, the 12 step meetings, that's when I need to get to work because it's going to be back. And when it comes back, the desire to act out, I want to be prepared. So what I'm, I think Tammy would kind of say it like this. What is the plan for you to have disclosure? What is the plan for you to go through the whole story and find out what you didn't know about? I see 14 months post discovery. I don't think of anything about disclosure. Um, also, um, and yeah, I, I just, at 25 years of treating addicts and being one myself, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be wonderful if I had, if I got to have a different career, imagine that if you guys could just have it all go away once you got caught, well, I wouldn't have to work. <laughs> I could take my social security and go. Um, but the reality is, is that it takes a lot of work to stop and a lot of support to change your life. And you know, I don't, you know, I'd like to have a conversation with him because I think he's minimizing and not being honest with you. I just don't think that what he says is possible unless it is crisis related. And in which case within a few months, it will be back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.